Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Writer, designer, and publisher Robert Sokol is editor of San Francisco performing arts site Bay Stages and a regular contributor to the San Francisco Examiner. Robert is also an avid musical theater collector and specializes in collecting international cast recordings. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Louisa. I'm very excited to chat with you today. It's always fun to talk about musicals and specifically about cast recordings. Always. (laughs) So can you give us an overview of your current collection? Um, it's huge. (laughs) (laughs) I would guess that there are several thousand uh, CDs and LPs and then a few cassettes and eight tracks of things that never made it to another format. And I'm old, so I have covered all of the formats and all of the video formats. Don't even get me started on that (laughs) over the last uh, 40 plus years. Wow. When did you start collecting? I think, well, I I can tell you my very first recording of any kind goes back to 1967. And a lot of people wouldn't admit this in public, but it was the soundtrack to Dr. Doolittle. Oh, wow. The the, uh, Rex Harrison? Rex Harrison, Anthony Newley, uh, with a Newley Brickus score, um, Leslie Brickus and Samantha Egger was in it, and um, and re- directed by Richard Attenborough, and it was it triggered something in my little forming eight nine year old brain at the time that said, "Hey, these musical things are cool. You should pay attention to these," and it had this huge gatefold LP. Remember, LPs used to be these lovely nine, the 12 and a half inch square things, you know, but usually just front and back. Well, this one was what was called a gatefold. So you, it opened up, had a booklet inside of pictures from the movie. You could relive the whole thing all over again. And I wore that thing out. Um, and all the lyrics too, right? It did not have lyrics. It had oh, behind the scenes. Some of them do, or some of them have. Some of the LPs had inserts with the lyrics. Um, this one did not, but it had a lot of stories about Doctor Doolittle and the making of the motion picture and so on. So yeah, that was the, that was the first one that I bought, and it's been financially downhill ever since. <laughs> I know this pain. Theater tickets is it's an expensive enterprise. <laughs> yes, and 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 the movie led me into lots live theater and live musicals and and so on and so forth down the line. So how soon after that first purchase did you start thinking of yourself as a collector? Um, that's a good question. I don't know exactly. This was like 1968, so probably in the early 70s. I mean, albums that very specifically stand out in my mind that I bought in my early teen years were the the soundtrack to Mame with Lucy, Lucille Ball. I remember buying the soundtrack to Live and Let Die, which then launched a whole James Bond thing, which 
is another podcast. And then West Side Story, the film soundtrack. And then somewhere in that mix, and would have, this would have to be like now by like 72, 73, came A Little Night Music, the original Broadway cast recording of A Little Night Music. Mm-hmm. And that set off several different directions at once, including my lifelong obsession with the work of Stephen Sondheim, which is shared by many. So, so yeah, probably by the mid seventies, I, I had started to build, you know, a shelf full of LPs and went on from there. Was that the first album that you also purchased in a language other than English? No, no, actually the, I hate saying foreign language because the language is not foreign to other people. So I say, <laughs> I try to say non-English, which is a little bit cumbersome, but it is what it is. Um, no, that actually didn't come until the early 80s. I was born in Munich in Germany, actually then West Germany. I I, I like to joke that I was born in a country that no longer exists. And on on my first trip back there, um, since, uh, since I left, I was about five years old, I went into a record store, and this this will make lots of people cringe, including my husband. But the the, <laughs> the very first non English cast recording that I picked up and decided I have to have this was Cats in German. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Cats in German, and um, uh. yeah. <laughs> I go ahead and shake your head. And not not only that, but then I had to learn memory in German so that I could sing it. Because at that point I had discovered that I liked to sing. So that I Can you remember it? Oh yeah. You don't want me to sing. Oh can you speak a little bit? I'm really curious what it sounds like. Uh, Mondlicht. Schau hinauf in das Mondlicht, geh ins Land die Erinnerung, los mir auf ihrem Bahn. Und wenn du dort erfahren hast, was Glück wirklich ist, fängt ein neues Leben an. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so I, I want to dive into this idea of uh, musicals recorded in languages other than English. Uh, yes, we do need a, a shorter term for that, non-English musicals. <laughs> How much of your collection is made up of non-English musicals? Probably a third. Mm-hmm. Probably a third of it. Some scores have given themselves to many, many, many international mm-hmm. recordings, and then and some are quite obscure. So it's it, it's a mix of things. It's like you know, yes, there are many other versions of cats in my collection: French and Italian and Spanish and. Um, is there a Hebrew version of Cats? I don't remember. Anyway, but then Evita. I do have a Hebrew version of Evita um, and a you know Greek version of the Full Monty, and you know. So there, there are some some shows lend themselves to a lot of international cast recordings, particularly Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's something of a global phenomenon. And then others, just you really have to. You know, you're lucky if you find one or two where it's been translated and 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 commercially recorded. A lot of a lot of musicals are translated and produced in other languages, but they're they are not documented in any way other than bootleg recordings um, that you may happen upon. What is the appeal for you in listening to, say, Evita in Hebrew? Do you speak Hebrew? No. 
no, the, the only languages other than English uh, that I speak conversationally, the only other language is German. I have become intuitive about Spanish. Living in California, you're exposed to a lot of Spanish. My husband speaks Spanish. Uh, we travel uh, to Costa Rica frequently. So, so it's, um, you know, Spanish, I, I, so I surprise him sometimes by the things that I actually can interpret. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but that's it. Um, but the appeal, it's two-pronged. One is that I'm really culturally curious. And so therefore, I love to go to other countries. I love to travel. We both love to travel. I'm more of an urban traveler. He's He likes to, uh, you know, experience El Sabor de Pueblo a little bit more. <laughs> so so that piece, and, and of course, because theater is such a big piece of my life, when I am in these other countries, I like to see what's there. I also like to shop for recordings, but that's another story. Um, so, so there's that piece of it. I'm also, I love puzzles. I love puzzles and figuring out how things work. And because I'm also a writer, words really matter to me and I pay attention to words. And so particularly when I have a libretto for a translation of a score, um, it's fun for me to look at the Spanish or German or Italian words and go, oh, that's the root for that in Latin, which means this, which uh, that's how we got that word. That's what that means. And it helps that you, you know, at least I have the English libretto in my head so that I can, I can start to put those things together. We go to musicals uh, when we travel. So we've seen... Uh, easy ones that are easy to follow. So we've seen Chicago in Greek in Athens and in Dutch in the Netherlands. Um, we've gone to the Witches of Eastwick in northern Germany. You know things like that. I mean, if if there's a musical happening, we try to go. We try to go see it. Um, we've actually developed a fondness for several international performers like um, Simone Kleinsmann, Pia Dawes from um, from the Netherlands. The, the Netherlands are well known for their um, alphabets. They're always, um, I'm blanking on her name. There's a, there's one actress in particular who is... Um, Willemann Verkijk. That's the one, yes, yeah. who is adored as an alphabet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's. I just got an email about her starting a, a, a concert tour or something soon. So, oh, yeah. fun. Yeah. I'm curious, when you see these shows that are originally written in English performed in a different language what changes sometimes the 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 um it get, they they acquire a subliminal intensity or a subliminal flavor um that is 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 very interesting the the one that comes most often to mind for me is uh, and this i've not seen this performed in either language but to listen to evita in either german or spanish just both of them add different kinds of flavors to um, the music and how it's being sung um, and, and make for a very different experience. I mean, so, sometimes it's, it's hard. Um, I, I, a lot of the Japanese recordings of musicals can be hard to listen to, not because Japanese isn't an attractive language because believe me, people think the German is one of the ugliest languages in the universe, but you know, I don't take offense, but I, but I never try to take 
never try to cast aspersions on other languages, but I think that particularly I've noticed for Japanese recordings or, or Asian language recordings more than others, the intonation and the enunciation and and just the way, you know, they're speaking their own language, but they're trying to put it within the musical theater idiom. And it, it's it's challenging. It doesn't always click. Um, mm. You know, some things do. Um, Elizabeth is very popular um, in Japan, you know. And lo- in Korea, too. And in Korea. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's the whole Takarazuka phenomenon, which, <laughs> mind-blowing. Wait, can you tell us about that? Takarazuka is... Um, a very, very old tradition of musical theater. Um, I don't know how far back it goes and, and what its true roots were, but it's, it's, it's musical theater by women. And so they take, um, all the roles are played by women. All the roles. This is in uh, Japan? This is in Japan. Uh-huh. And all the roles are played by women. And they, they, they do everything. Um, they they take all of the all of the Broadway shows and and translate them and perform them there. Everything from Guys and Dolls to Me and My Girl to you know um, they create original musicals for themselves. Um, they uh, there's a Gone with the Wind musical uh, from the Takarazuka troupe. They have fiercely fiercely loyal, I mean rabidly loyal fan followings um that none of the glinda alphaba arguments that you've ever heard come close to how passionate fans are about their individual they call them troops there's the star troop and the moon troop and the wolf troop and the this troop and the that troop and they are also they they record more than anything any group that i know so there are there are probably three dozen or more recordings of the German musical Elizabeth by different casts of Takarazuka performers and different troops over and over and over again. And the interesting thing is that they sell like crazy and they are incredibly hard to find and incredibly expensive. I mean, literally, and they release videos as well. And you can spend 70, 80, 100, $150 for a video. Um, of wow. one of their productions of Elizabeth or of, um, you know, they, 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 I don't know that they've tackled Les Miserables, but they, 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 they're, they're, um, they've done Phantom. They've done uh, just, and, and it's all women. It's all women. And it's all, it, it, the pictures are just so interesting to look at. I, 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 when I see things online, you know, it's, they're all very slender women. Um, and they have on, you know, the mustaches for the male roles and the slicked back hair and all. So they, they take it very, very seriously. I've never witnessed one of their performances. So I, I don't know how well it plays out, but, um, List, I want to find list. videos now. If there, yeah, if there yeah. Are I'm, videos. I'm sure there are at least clips online where where you can get a sense of it. Um, wow, wow, that is. I'm so glad you told me about that. I can't wait to go <laughs> research that. <laughs> I I love what you were saying. How a different language can inject a different flavor into a show. I really felt that watching Daddy Long Legs in Spanish. It was filmed live um, a couple of weeks ago in Mexico and they performed it to an empty theater. 
And it was so beautiful. And it was very similar to the off-Broadway version, but there was something like Spanish and Mexican about mm -hmm. it that in the way that they performed and the, the different inflections that they had. And I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I can understand it. And so I, I could follow most of it. And I know that score very well, like, you know, like you said, like knowing the libretto in English in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. But it was really fascinating to see how just changing the language, like nothing else was changed, mm -hmm. how it can inject this flavor. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, every, every culture brings something to the art form i mean obviously there um you know there are the, there are the native uh interpretations of the art form whether it's you know like the takarazuka which is it which is you know a uniquely japanese thing um uh there are you know european troops that have that bring different qualities there are different there are different forms of musical theater and theater uh that that are unique to each culture and then they they intersect those with uh you know the broadway musical or the west end musical um and and take their particular aptitudes their special skills their essences and in, inject those into you know the the art form that you and i are so familiar with it's 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 really wonderful to experience that um it gives you uh not only a, a renewed appreciation in in some ways for you know the art form that drew you in the first place, but it also gives you different perspectives on how it can be. You know what the op opportunities are in your collection. How much of the international stuff, the non English musicals, are filmed rather than recordings or like CDs? Not as much um, because they tend to be much harder to find. At, at least up until like maybe the nineties, um, finding stuff from before the nineties is very unusual. Um, they, it just, it just wasn't done. They, there, there was no sense of, um, archiving or of legacy about it. I mean, there, there, there is documentary footage. There are archives just like there's the, um, Toft in New York, the theater, the theater on film and tape, but you can't access them. And, you're probably hard pressed to access them as a resident of whichever country you're in, but even harder to do that from afar. Although with technology, you'd think it would be easier now. Um, so commercial commercially released re video recordings of, of musicals are prior to the nineties, the late nineties are rare with the turn of the century that changed a bit. Um, a lot of the French pop musicals, Le Spectacle, um, they, um, they have become available on video. So there's, uh, Cleopatra and, and, and they love the historical ones. So there's Cleopatra and Ben-Hur and Adam and Eve and 1789, the lovers at the barricade. And, you know, so, so there, there are a lot of those, the Germans have done that. There's a video of something called Tutankhamen. There is a video of a musical about Gustav Klimt, the artist. Um, you know, there, so, so there are those. Um, Leroy de Soleil um, has been uh, recorded on video. Uh, so there, there are enough of them now. And now with um, the internet uh, becoming, you know, more of a tool within the theater community, um, it's, it's spreading. You know, you, you said, as you said, you, you got to see the um, Daddy Longlegs. Yeah. Uh, 
stream, which I missed. I was furious. It's coming back. They're doing an encore screening. Good, good. Yes. So I can see that. A There's couple a weeks- calendar on Film Live Musicals. The The calendar has I, the, the link. Your wonderful calendar. Thank you. A couple of weeks before I missed that, I, I was able to see a Spanish musical called Mentiras, which is hysterical. It's It's just, it's, Desperate Housewives as a musical with a murder mystery. And it's it's just crazy. And why somebody hasn't translated it and brought it to the U.S. domestic market, I don't understand. Because the music is good, and it's, it's incredibly funny. It's in that realm of, you know, Little Shop of Horrors and, and mm. that, that beehive and, and all of those, you know, just, just that heightened reality, big, bright pop colors um, kind of presentation that I think would do really well. I think that's also having an encore screening. Um, the tickets are available through Ticketmaster Mexico, and but I, it may be one where it's only available in Mexico. I've, there are it's, so many that I, I mix them up in my head, but there is an encore screening about to happen or it's just happened. They also streamed a drag version of the show. which which makes total sense for that show. Total sense for that show. I I will have to check that one out. It's, it keeps popping up on my radar, but now I have your recommendation. So there's no excuse not to see it. (laughs) So we we've talked a little bit about how the internet has changed getting access to these productions. You mentioned earlier that the technology for your collection has changed, that you started out with LPs and now it's uh, all digital. Can you talk about that shift a little bit? It's a blessing and a curse. I'm I'm very old school, and so you know my my introduction to it all was that big twelve plus inch square gatefold with the pictures and so on. So I had a long period of mourning when LPs went away and CDs came in. But but thanks to you know some really dedicated um, CD companies, releasing companies like. Um, PS Classics, like Broadway Records, um, like Ghostlight, and, and its uh, former companion Shikaboom. Um, you know, they 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 made the CD experience in terms of the physical packaging because I'm also a graphic designer, so I, I look at all of that and really revel in that. Made the transition easier, and of course, the sound quality. Th- there are purists who say, you know, that. Vinyl will always be superior to digital. I don't hear that. I'm not one of the people that hears that. So for me, not having the crackle and pop, unless it's there for effect, (laughs) um, of an LP that you've played several hundred times, that to me was a bonus in making that transition. Moving into the digital realm, um, again, it's a little bit of a sense of loss. It's like, you know, it's getting to the point now where people aren't even generating some sort of insert, some sort of booklet. You, you, you get a folder with maybe cover art and your, your 1392 K, you know, bit rate um, downloads, MP3 files, and you're done. And that, that, that to me, I think is starting to do a disservice thing to things first, because there is, diminished audio quality after a point, particularly if you're doing headphone listening, you know, from an AIFF file to an MP3 file, uh, you you just do lose something in in terms of the texture and the tone of the sound. So seeing that go that way is, is disappointing. You know, if, if the companies, I have suggested 
I've been fortunate enough to connect with some of the people in the recording industry, in the cast recording industry. And I've suggested, you know, like make the digital, if you're going to go digital, make it as exciting as possible. You're going to save some money on the physical production of CDs and booklets and cases and shipping and all of that stuff. So reinvest that money into, you know, more liner notes, more background, more interactive, more things like that and make that digital experience, um, you know, more engaging, make it richer. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's, that's one part of the digital uh, transition. The, the, on the plus side of digital um, is that it's a lot easier to acquire some obscure stuff that, that, you know, is, was either released commercially, but is so hard to find or that, um, you know, cause and particularly in my realm, in the international uh, language musicals realm, as we said, you know, a lot of times they weren't recorded at all, but, if they were recorded frequently, they were only sold at the theater. Mm. So therefore, yes, it's been released on CD, but maybe they pressed a thousand copies or 2000 copies or something like that. So then you have to go chasing and maybe you connect with somebody because now we are this big global village. You connect with somebody who has that, um, who might be willing to at least share so that you can hear it. Um, there's an old joke in, in collecting memorabilia that says that having, having a cassette copy of a rare recording was like kissing your sister. The mechanics were the same, but it wasn't really the same experience. And so, um, no offense to Sisters World Round, um, but but you know there there was that um, you know the actual having of of the CD or having of the LP or so. But so so one of the benefits of of the digital world is that you know no no you can't have that, but you can at least hear it. You know, you, you can at least have an MP3 file of it that you can hear, you can experience what it was like on, on at least a reduced level. How does having digital affect your physical collection? I know lots of folks who have ripped all of their CDs and LPs to digital files and have big terabyte drives and have gotten rid of the rest, have gotten rid of their CDs, gotten rid of their LPs, given them away, sold them. Um, and they're fine with that, and they feel like they have sufficient redundant backup, which is crucial, because um, I don't want to talk about the number of sob-, sob stories I've heard about. Oh, I had a hard disk crash, and I lost all of that. It was like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. devastating. <laughs> yeah. So what does that do? That um, For the size of my collection, the digital component just makes it worse, because <laughs> there is so much that you can have that is digital only. Mm. Um, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data. I mean, I, I truly have more music than I will ever listen to in the rest of my life. Um, but you, you start to acquire things and I'm using air quotes that your listeners won't be able to see here, but for the collection, you know, Oh, I should have that for the collection. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, and so you just, you start to acquire things and, and maybe it's like, maybe it's a show that you just, you don't you, you listen to it once in English and you really don't ever want to listen to it again. But you know, I I have that collector's gene that says, Oh, you know, um in Spanish, sure, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll 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 get that. 
So, so yeah, so um, I have terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data, um, and, and I've never gotten rid of an LP or CD that I acquired along the way. So I have a lot of stuff. How do you store it all? The LPs are in the proverbial cool, dry place um, in a storage facility. Um, so I don't, I don't have those at hand. They're they're in the in the building where I live, but they're not here in my apartment. Um, the CDs are here. Um, I did have to make a concession at some point along the way that um, plastic had to go, um, and so I. Got rid. I got rid of all the plastic jewel cases, just boxes and boxes and boxes of them, and and migrated them. Migrated the booklets and the liners, uh, the under tray liners, and um, and put the CDs and sleeves. And I I acquired, and they have since discontinued it. So I'm very glad I bought as many as I did at the time. <laughs> but IKEA used to have these these storage units called Mackie, M-A-K-I. And they were two drawers in a little beech wood box frame. And it was excruciatingly simple, very easy. And they were like, you you get a unit for $9.99 or something like that. And so I, 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 I have a wall in my apartment. <laughs> it's, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. It's 160 of these units. It's... Yeah, it's it's hundred it's hundred and sixty of these units, floor to ceiling, um, and it's all it's CDs plus DVDs, not just musical stuff, but also just Hollywood films and whatever. Because I'm also a movie junkie, um, uh, and and so there's that. So the the LPs are off site, so to speak, and the CDs are here because I'm constantly referring to them. I'm constantly referring to them. It's, you know, it's uh, how I spend more time than I probably should. You said you probably have more music than you will have time in your lifetime to listen to. So what is your, what are your listening habits? How often are you listening to the stuff that you have or the new stuff that you're acquiring? I try, I I get backlogged, um, you know, with, well, I have I have a business to run, so um, so I have to like focus on that. Um, although right now it's a little on the slow side because theaters are closed. Um, but um, I tend to cue stuff up to listen to while I'm working. Um, when new material, when new CDs come in, I I will rip them to my hard drive so that I have them available. I don't I don't spin CDs past the first time, um, you know, I, I rip them at a high bit rate and store them on my hard drive. And that's, that's sufficient for, you know, listening while I work or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I, my, my cue stacks up pretty quickly. Um, I, I, some people I know listen to them as they go to sleep at night, they just pop in headphones and listen. I, I'm not able to do that because I will never sleep. Yeah, <laughs> it will not lull me into into sleepiness. It will like, oh, I like this this new score. Oh my god! Like, yeah. So yeah. What so, else did they so, write? What other languages is this available in? <laughs> exactly. It it is it, not relaxing. It is stimulating, um, mm-hmm. which, which is not the purpose at twelve one o'clock in the morning. Yes, I quite agree. <laughs> what happens to your collections and? other collectors who are out there when, when you're no longer on this mortal coil, what happens to all of this content? It's a very good question. And, and one that gets discussed within collector circles fairly regularly. 
um, and and it keeps shifting. It used to be that you would donate your collection, maybe if you didn't sell it, if you didn't choose to sell it, you would donate your collection to a library. Well, libraries don't want them anymore. Unless, unless your collection is extremely unique, libraries don't really want those kinds of donations uh, because of the cost of incorporating them, the onboarding costs of like cataloging them and bringing them into their system and, 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 and making them fit within their framework. And also because of duplication, it's like, you know, pretty much every musical theater collection is going to have, you know, Carol Channing and Hello Dolly and a chorus line and, you know, Les Mis, the you know, original London Les Mis. It's like, so, so there's a lot of duplication and people, people, I think some people have this, this fantasy that like everything will stay together and you have to, if you're going to try to donate to a library or museum or something like that, you have to accept the fact that they're probably going to break it up there. If, if, if they even accept it, they're going to go through it and say, okay, these of these hundred CDs or 200 CDs, this 175 we already have, we're putting these in our, you know, secondhand shop or in our fundraising auction or whatever. And then these 25 that we don't have, we will incorporate those into our archive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one way to go. Um, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm looking at the, because of my unique interest I'm looking at trying to create some sort of repository for it um, to build a relationship with an institution. And I I haven't figured out who that is yet, but I really am interested in um, finding an institution, whether it's a performing arts museum or a school um, or a language institute or something, uh, some sort of organization that would be interested would, would at least to be initially intrigued and then building a partnership with them because I'm still relatively young. Um, so I, I plan to be doing this for quite some time still so that I can fine tune my collection to um, what they will be interested in having and maybe work with other collectors to pull things together to sort of become a, a, a clearinghouse for these sorts of things. Um, there are recordings I don't have, which I know other people do. And um, that ultimately, you know, some sort of universal musical archive might be formed um, that then would make these recordings available for study or, you know, or just pleasure. Um, so it's, it's something as I, as I approach retirement, um, that I hope will be a project that I can, uh, you know, successfully see through and, 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 and then derive a great deal of satisfaction from that. You know, that's if, if, the, if I have any concept of legacy, that might be it. I know we have the New York public library, the performing arts library and the Tuft, the theater and film and tape archive, but is there a dedicated musical theater library? I'm not aware of one at this time. Um, I have not really researched. Um, there are certain kinds of musical archives and libraries. I mean, Michael Feinstein runs an archive for the American Songbook. Um, 
we have an organization here in San Francisco, uh, used to be called SF Palm, P-A-L-M, the Performing Arts Library and Museum. They changed their name a few years back to the Museum of Performance and Design. And in their earlier incarnation, I did some consulting work for them, which included the onboarding of, of a musical theater archive. Um, <clears throat> it was a, a very traditional musical theater collection, primarily LP-based. Um, but it was a big deal about this, this renowned collector donating his entire collection to the library. Um, and so I'm going to approach them, see what kind of interest they have in, per, in continuing that sort of resource. And if, there, if, if it doesn't exist there, then I have to start looking you know, to another resource. The blessing of the Internet is that it's pretty easy to get out into the world and see what's out there. Yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. And with COVID now, it has changed the way the theater industry has made things available online. Where, you know, for the database, I was adding, you know, two or three musicals a year. It was very like, you know, oh, yay, an event is happening, like by once once every six months kind of excitement. And now it's like six or seven a week. It's yeah. There's just an explosion of material available. I've actually hit periods of streaming fatigue Mm-hmm. Um, where I just like, and, and it's weird because it's, it's, it's a, it's a different experience from watching television. It, 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 it engages different parts of my brain, um, to sit and, and binge a series, whether it's just a silly, guilty pleasure, trashy series or something you know, lofty as Downton Abbey. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to do that for four or five, six hours. It's another thing for my brain, at least, to spend a lot of time in Zooming kind of streaming things where um, I think subconsciously I'm always feeling the part that's missing. You know, it's, it's the, the, the content is clearly not a film or a television production. And so what I'm missing is that sense of being in the room and experiencing it live. Um, so I, I totally agree. Like I, I can spend four hours watching Great British Bake Off, but then I couldn't spend four hours streaming um, live performance. And so I'm curious, is the Zoom, the fatigue that you're feeling, is that, watching like I call them zoomsicles where it's like you know people performing on zoom and it's like edited together or is it when you're watching say the Broadway into the woods that was filmed with a live audience and is are you dividing between those two a little bit um you know because I I you know accessed a lot of the NT live stuff that was being streamed which is extraordinary quality uh and and you know, it's not, it's not, hi, I've, you know, I've got my little circle light and, and I'm talking to you on my phone and, and I'm going to sing for you now kind of thing. Um, you know, it's obviously very different quality material. So I, I, I guess a little bit of that, I, I, I empathize with creative people's innate need to create. And so I try not to judge 
even though I've been a, a reviewer for I try not to judge harshly. I try not to judge indiscriminately. Um, but but at, at, at a certain point, it's like, okay, maybe you need to do that for you. Um, you know, and, and, and there, there is always an audience, but I don't know that I can participate all the time. I, I can't be the audience all the time. I feel that way with everything, you know, every time I add another event to the calendar, it's like, well, I just, I can't see everything. It's, it's like being back in New York during when Broadway's open. It's like, I can't see eight shows a week anymore. I just, <laughs> I just see, don't that have that stamina. That I could still do. I, I, I think, I think my record was probably like nine or ten a week because of some funky matinee situations. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, I, I could go from theater to theater to theater still and do that. Yeah, but, in person, but on online, it's yeah. it's it's a it takes a different energy. I'd read that when we're chatting on on camera on Zoom that the physical cues that we could pick up in person, we can't pick those up on camera, even though we can see each other. So our brain has to like work overtime because we're overcompensating for the fact that we can't pick up on the cues that we think we can see, but we can't actually pick them up. I, I think that's very true because, and, and, and to be totally fair across the board, it's like I can't do just Zoom calls with friends for too long. Um, it just, it just, it, it, it's exhausting in certain ways. Um, you know, and it's different, particularly with the video element. It's one thing to talk on the phone for an hour. It, it, you you know, you can lie down on the couch, you can, you know, be more relaxed in a lot of different ways with the, with the video component, with the visual and, and in, Different also in the theater, because in the theater, unless you're an actor, you're in the dark. You're in the house in the dark. Nobody notices whether you like scratch your nose or, or something like that. It's, it's, you, the ushers you, notice. We see huh? everything. Uh, <laughs> the ushers see you. <laughs> and I tell you, I have seen some things. <laughs> that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> But, 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 but again, you know, being, being an audience member at a live event is a lot more relaxed than, um, than being engaged in a, in a zoom process, particularly if it's interactive. It's another thing too, if it's like, you know, well, I'm just going to air, air drop it up to the television and you know, let it run. But I wouldn't do that to a live performance, I wouldn't like wander in and out and, and not pay attention. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I get the desire to create, uh, or the need to create, which I think is very real for some people, but, um, it's too much content because the other factor is, uh, with the globalization with the internet, it's like, Oh, I not only have the, opportunity to keep up on all of the productions that are happening in the San Francisco Bay Area with its 300 theater companies. But I could keep up on what the Goodman is doing in Chicago and what Alliance Theater is doing and what National Theater Live at Home is doing. And, and the Southwark Playhouse. And, yes. yeah. <laughs> and it's just overwhelming at a certain point. Yeah. So 
end of rant. It's I I both love it and hate it. My my husband has asked me to stop complaining about adding more shows to the database. Yeah, because <laughs> he's like, you chose this, and I was like, I just need them to pause for a second so I can catch up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So going back to your collection, do you have countries that are more represented than others, or languages that are more represented than others? Yes, yes, for sure. The uh, German, Japanese, Dutch, uh, French, Spanish, those are probably the most, um, the most represented. I have tried to uh, extend my vision. Uh, there's, there's actually a wonderful online database that your listeners, if they are at all interested in this, um, in this topic, will want to explore. And it is um, castalbums.org, cast, C-A-S-T, albums, like albums, .org. And it allows you to actually search for um, recordings by language. Mm. So it has, it has filters built into it so that you can search for recordings by language. Um, you can also um, search on myriad other criteria. Um, it's a crowdsourced database. So therefore it's, you know, it's as all crowdsourced databases are, it's, it's subject to certain whims. But um, it, it, it is a hugely helpful thing um, to, uh, you know, look, look for things and to become, to become aware of the outer, um, outer parameters. I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking at the uh, screen for it now, and, you know, it starts with Afrikaans and Arabic and Basque, you know, and ends with uh, Welsh, Yiddish, and Zulu. Wow. Uh, so and 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 there are recordings in all of these languages that are available, um, and so I I um, endeavor to try and get as many different kinds of languages as I can represented within the collection. So I have things in in Turkish and Icelandic and Korean and um, Russian, you know, just. I've covered most of the primary languages, the, the top tier, you know, 30, 40 languages that um, are spoken. Um, and the other thing, I, I, maybe I'm jumping one of your questions or not, but one of the other aspects is not just to listen to the, the Japanese or the French or the, um, you know, German cast recording of Les Mis or The Phantom of the Opera or, you know, to pick some easy titles, but to listen to original musicals not sourced in English. Yeah, that's, um, I did a, want to ask about that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that, and, and, um, and it's fun to discover those things. It's challenging because if you're not fluent in the language or even conversant in the language, then you... You know, you have to intuit a lot. You have to research. If you're fortunate enough to, um, either because the recording comes with it or um, because you found it online, to um, look at a libretto 
and maybe translate that. There are tools through Google now where you can clumsily translate things to at least get a gist of an idea. If, if it's not <laughs> historical epic or, or famous novel like the Russian musical Anna Karenina or... You Count know, Orlov. <laughs> Count Orlov, Cleopatra, you know, those things where you kind of know the story going in. Um, like Jesus Christ Superstar, you know the story going in. You know, then you have to, then you have to research some and you, you have to try and figure out, well, what's going on here? Um, and ideally, there'll be reviews or liner notes in addition to maybe a libretto that you can access where you can get a better sense. Like Mentiras, the one I was talking about earlier, um, you know, Beforehand, I really had no idea what, before I saw it, what it was about, other than it was kind of this women on the verge of a nervous breakdown-ish energy um, going on <laughs> amongst this, this bunch of women. And, um, uh, and now, that I, now that I've seen it, all the music that I've heard from it um, over the years makes total sense and it all fits. And it's like, oh, that character does this kind of thing now. So the videos that we were talking about earlier really help with that too. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to see it, even if you don't understand the words, to get a sense, to, to pick up on those signals that you were talking about and, and intuit from that. Yeah. Which musical do you have a singular title in the most languages? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Greece is certainly oh, up wow. there. <laughs> Greece in many languages. Rocky Horror Show in many languages. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are the heavy hitters like Les Mis, The Phantom of the Opera. Among older titles, um, My Fair Lady um, is one that has received a lot of translation activity. That's interesting, giving its focus on the English language. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and and uh, to, when you start diving down into that to, to analyze, well, when they produce it somewhere where Cockney is meaningless, you know, is there a uh, another dialect that makes sense for the story? So there's, you know, high German, low German, and, and what the, how they interpret in, incorporate that oh, into telling the story in a German production. You know, there are other language equivalents of, you know, maybe Castilian Spanish versus another dialect of Spanish to make it work. So, so, so yes, there, there, you know, those are, those are some of the more popular musicals. Um, but it's, it's, it's as much fun to have those as it is to, um, to discover things that you didn't expect. I mean, the, the and and the last point that I would put add into this mix is shopping. Shopping. And shopping. Shopping. Because when we travel, we shop. And I have spent more hours in secondhand music stores, LP and CD stores in Stockholm and Helsinki and Amsterdam and Turkey or Istanbul, and you know, than than my husband would like to. <laughs> Uh, but you, you, but in those moments, and and I seem to have an eye for it. You discover the most amazing things. I was in a store in Istanbul, trying desperately, hoping against hope that I would find something, and I tripped over the Turkish original Turkish musical version of Casablanca. Oh wow! <laughs> the original Turkish musical version of Casablanca. <laughs> um, 
by the same token, and this starts to get very esoteric, and I, I can see the eye rolling already, is like I was in a store in Copenhagen and found a copy of Godspell in Danish that I'd always wanted. I'd known about it from the database and wanted it. But then I found a different version of Godspell in Danish. Two Danish Christmas. Two Danish cast recordings of Godspell in one trip. I was in heaven. <laughs> Declaring that at customs. <laughs> oh, yes. And it, the, the, the cruelty now with the, the how vicious they are about weight limits on what you can carry back. LPs are a really tough slog. I bet. And that's the beauty of digital. You rip it before you go come home. <laughs> so to finish up, I have a series of quick questions. You don't need to think about it too much. Whatever comes to mind is good, and there are no wrong answers. That's dangerous, but go ahead. <laughs> what is your favorite musical? There isn't one. Okay. Do you have a favorite filmed live musical? My heart belongs to Dr. Doolittle. That's beautiful. I'm loyal. I'm loyal. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit before. A filmed live musical is not exactly theater and it's not exactly a film. So what should we call it? Um, a video. <laughs> Where do you stand on bootlegs? I am grateful for their existence in many, many ways. I am appalled and repulsed and infuriated by the people who try to make money on them. Mm. I, I think so many, so many wonderful things have been documented by people who, um, who have recorded illicitly recorded something, whether it's, you know, Liza Minnelli stepping into Chicago for Gwen Verdon or footage of, um, you know, uh, Ethel Merman in the original run of gypsy, uh, just all sorts of things like that. Um, I'm grateful that those things exist footage of the original follies, you know, the, those, but when somebody, when I get an email from somebody saying, you know, I've got the November 12th, uh, 2017 performance of Wicked with so-and-so understudying for so-and-so, and it'll be $20 if enough people say they're interested. Otherwise, I'm not releasing it. Just wow. th those people I just want to reach through the screen and smack. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation with Stephen Sondheim once about this and he says, yeah, we all have bootlegs. We all have bootlegs. I said, and that's, he said, and that's fine, but don't sell them because if you're selling bootlegs of my work, I want my cut. <laughs> and fairly so. And fairly so. What do you wish had been recorded? I'll go back to Follies. I wish there was a really good full video of Follies that was accessible. There, there is, there is footage in Toft, but you have to jump through unbelievable hurdles to try and get there. Mm -hmm. And what would you like to see filmed in the or recorded in the future? The next Stephen Sondheim musical. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> give, give us more to see. Oh, that is a perfect note to finish on. That's Sunday in the Park is one of my favorites. And that, that makes me very emotional. <laughs> Sorry. In a good way. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Louise. I hope I haven't rambled too far or made people scratch their heads wrong. Not at all. Before we wrap up, uh, where can people find you online? 
I probably the easiest way is to seek me out on Facebook. Um, that's, you know, Robert Sokol on Facebook. Uh, I, I, there was a Robert Sokol before me, so I had to be Robert Sokol showbiz, which kind of makes sense. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Meant to be. (laughs) Thank you again, Robert. All right. Take care, Louisa. Filmed Live Musicals is a labor of love, and we'd like to thank everyone who makes it possible. Thank you to our patrons, Josh Brandon, Mercedes Esteban, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Al Monaco, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for your support. If you'd like to support Filmed Live Musicals, please like and review on your podcast app. Find us on Twitter at Musicals on Screen and on Facebook at Filmed Live Musicals. If you'd like to support the site financially, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen. No matter what level you're able to pledge, you'll receive early access to written content and early access to this very podcast. Visit www.filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.